Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Leslie McClurg in for Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, on August 4th, 2020, a warehouse full of chemicals exploded in Beirut. And it sent a shockwave faster than the speed of sound through the city. A white dome engulfed entire neighborhoods, killing hundreds, injuring thousands, and causing billions in damage. Following the blast, Lebanon experienced an unprecedented economic and political collapse from which it is still reeling. As Dalal Mawad writes in her new book, in Lebanon, new traumas pile on top of previous ones before you've had time to recover. We talked to Mawad about her country's collective trauma and the female survivors who are seeking justice. That's next after this news. This is Forum. I'm Leslie McClurg, and today for Mina Kim. Most Californians, including myself, remember August 2020 because it was bleak. We were in the throes of the pandemic, and 27 wildfires were ripping across the state. It was sizzling. Temperatures were soaring. Do you remember the sky turned orange? We couldn't go outside because we couldn't breathe. On the other side of the world, in Lebanon, the summer of 2020 also felt apocalyptic. The country was also in lockdown and in the throes of complete economic collapse. And then on a very hot, humid evening, a warehouse full of ammonium nitrate caught fire and exploded. The blast was the largest non-nuclear explosion in history. Dalal Mawad spoke with dozens of female survivors, and she threads their stories together in her new book, All She Lost. Dalal Mawad is a Lebanese journalist, and she currently freelances for CNN. And previously, she worked with the Associated Press as a correspondent in Beirut. Welcome, Dalal. Hi, Leslie. Thank you for having me on the show. So take us back to that uh, horrible day, August 4th, 2020. I mean, I looked at the videos yesterday, and it really did look like an atomic bomb. I don't think you were in the city center, but kind of close by, kind of paint a picture for us. Yeah, that's true. As you mentioned, it was the pandemic and um, I was working from home. And I always say I was lucky uh, that I was working from home because our offices uh, back then, the offices of the Associated Press were in the center of Beirut, in downtown Beirut. And the next morning when I went to check um, on, on, on the bureaus, I had no roof above my desk. So you can only imagine what would have happened uh, had I been there working from the office on, on that day. I live in, uh, on the outskirts of Beirut, about 17 kilometers away. And around 6 p.m., I was feeding my cat. And I heard what was uh, what sounded like the familiar uh, sound of uh, Israeli air jets. They were very common that summer. We heard them a lot in Lebanese airspace. And 
just a few minutes after the loudest explosion I had ever heard um, in my life. And just immediately, I thought it was an airstrike. Um, that's That was my immediate reaction and the reaction of so many people. Um, but uh, unfortunately, it wasn't. It was an explosion at the port of Beirut, but it would take me many hours. And even until the next morning when I drove uh, by the port, um, because I'm a journalist and I was allowed to, that I realized the magnitude of, of what happened um, on August 4th. Half of the city was destroy there was rubble and wreckage everywhere and I vividly describe this in, in in my book and it's something that I always say affected me personally because I had friends and family members who were injured and um, turned homeless on on that evening uh, many people I know uh, died as well um, it's one of the most painful days in every Lebanese uh, uh, person's life, whether you were in Lebanon and in Beirut or, or outside. I think many of us say our lives changed forever on that day. Um, and something on that day, um, we, we all lost something on, on, on that day, something in us something in me uh, really died. Um, and uh, I think Lebanon is no longer the same, unfortunately, since August 4th and since that uh, economic uh, crisis. And a lot of people today are still um, surviving, uh, surviving that economic crisis and lingering with the trauma and the pain from that ill-fit ill-fated day uh, and fighting for for justice because four years on we still don't have an official narrative as to what happened four years on no one leslie not one single lebanese official has been held accountable uh, for what what happened we'll we'll get into you you landed on many threads i hope to explore but just just kind of take us give us a visual for what you saw so you're driving into the city i think you had a live hit at 6 a.m so you're driving in to, to basically go to work what mm. did you see as you were driving in yeah, as I said, it was only then that I realized what had happened, Be even before I reached the port of Beirut, which is the epicenter, and very close to where I lived. So we're talking about 15 kilometers away from the city. I started seeing uh, broken glass uh, windows, uh, doors. And then as I got closer, really, buildings had nothing left in them. Some of them were just concrete columns. There was uh, wreckage and, and rubble everywhere. It was very hard to uh, to drive by Cars completely smashed, uh, hammered. A lot of people on the streets, uh, you know, with their bare hands, removing rubble and looking for their loved ones. Uh, half of the city, the, the, the eastern part of the city specifically, was uh, destroyed. It was like had nothing I had seen uh, before. I mean, I've seen similar scenes in, in Syria and, and, and Iraq, but these were cities that were destroyed after months and years of airstrikes and fighting. Uh, whereas in the case of Beirut, it took a few minutes only to 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 cause that kind of uh, damage and um, a lot of people uh, you know had nowhere to go hundreds of thousands were turned homeless um, they uh, they had to leave the city sometimes also seeking for for medical aid and support because a lot of hospitals were also uh, destroyed and turned in, into hell um, on, on that day and you know it's it's weird and I describe it in my book when I drove by the port it was it had 
this really weird and bizarre silence because it was the morning after almost. Um, and you have the silos of, of the port. The port of Beirut had, has these famous uh, silos and only half of them ha were were destroyed. And they're still standing, uh, by the way, today. Um, ha half of them are, are still standing. Um, and you go through this survivor guilt. Why did I stay alive? Where when so many uh, died and you keep wondering, you know, this is where you were every single day. This is where I worked, where I grew up. And for more than seven years, that ammonium nitrate was there. And I was just driving by it every single uh, day and could have exploded um, any day. So it's just sheer luck that so many of us are, are still alive. And so many lost, though. I, there's, you obviously tell the story of, of many, many women. Uh, there was a cardiologist, a female cardiologist, who was at a hospital who could see the smoke begin to billow before the blast happened. Do you happen to have your book in front of you? I'd love for you to read a passage from her perspective at the top of page six, if you happen to have your book with you. Yeah, I have one. Let me just grab it. Uh, are you talking about uh, Rita? Yes, Rita. I might yes. have said that wrong, but yes, Rita. Yeah, yeah. Um, do you want me to start with the beginning? Just basically her visual. So I think it's the top of page six. I flew. The force of the explosion hurt so much. I was stuck to the wall, couldn't move, and felt all the pressure tearing my body apart. I saw everything around me fly. It lasted for a while, around 30 seconds, before we were, because we were close to the port. I couldn't understand what was happening. I could feel something cold running down my face. In my mind, blood is not cold. I asked my colleague if we were dead. Maybe this is what death feels like. I never felt like this before. He told me he didn't know. What was Another, the, oh, sorry, yeah. Go ahead. yeah, I mean, you could keep going, but I'm curious. So she's standing, she's having this massive experience, so painful. And then what did the rest of her day look like? That's where I was. I mean, obviously, her, that moment is horrific, but... But tell me about the rest of her day. Yeah, she was supposed to to be going home at, at, at that time. And, um, you know, she was stuck at the hospital and it, it took her a while for her and her colleagues to get out and realize that, you know, they, they thought uh, the rest of the hospital was OK. They could go to the ER. And when they reached the ER, they realized that it was complete, um, you know, havoc and, and destruction. And um, although she was injured herself, uh, she spent the rest of, of the day uh, helping evacuate uh, patients treat them, although there was no hospital left. And she uh, recalls how they turned a parking lot into uh, an ER and were treating people uh, outdoors with the bare minimum because there was nothing left, as, as I said. Um, and it is only later that she realized that she had to treat her wounds because she, she could no longer uh, go on without uh, getting treated um, herself. And really, Rita suffered from a lot of trauma after that. She's now based in France as well. Uh, she works in Marseille in the south of France. Um, and um, she, she tells me that, it, and this is something really powerful that she says at the end, I don't know if you want me to, um, to, to read it, but she says that it's easier for those who passed away, for those who died, because those who are uh, alive have to suffer from that lingering trauma and, and sense of uh, loss. And it's just so hard to, to live with that. Oh, 
Before we go into a break, I'd love for you to tell us the story of Pamela. This was a nurse who saved three babies, and a photographer captured a picture of her carrying these three newborns out of the hospital, and that image went viral. Tell us about her. Yeah, Pamela was um, was a nurse at uh, one of the hospitals in, in Beirut, and she actually uh, was taking care of uh, premature babies in incubators. And when the explosion happened, um, what she did was take three of those babies in her hands and try to get them to safety. And she went from one hospital to another, realizing that all of these hospitals were destroyed. Uh, there was another doctor with her, and I, I described that in, in the book. But it's uh, really mind-blowing because she had three tiny babies in her hand, and she walked for more than an hour um, on the highway, trying to get out of Beirut to reach a hospital that could have taken them and put them in an incubator. And she finally reached a safety after... Um, really a horrible uh, journey. And she puts all three of them um, in an incubator and basically saves uh, their lives. And she says that those babies actually saved her life because she was so focused on getting them to, to, to safety that, you know, that kept her going. It gave her stamina and, and perseverance. She was also injured. Um, and uh, she, she witnessed so much, um, uh, you know, so much like everything was gory around her and, and, and a lot of people were, were suffering, but she focused on saving those babies and she did heroic work really on, on that day. I, I just can't imagine, you know, how she, she did that. Just walking for so long with three premature babies in her hands, oh, in her that, arms. That image is just, whew. we're talking about the Beirut port explosion that took place back in August, 2020. And we're joined by journalist Dalal Mawad, her new book is All She Lost, and it details the aftermath of the catastrophe. And she tells that story through the lives of the women who were impacted. I also want to apologize to listener. I made a slip of tongue in the beginning of the show. Uh, the blast was the speed of sound, not the speed of light. We'll be back right after this break to continue our conversation with Dalal. Stay with us. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
You're listening to Forum. I'm Leslie McClurg in for Mina Kim today, and we're talking about the massive explosion that happened in Beirut in August of 2020. We're joined by journalist Dalal Mawad, and she just finished a new book, All She Lost, and it details the aftermath of this horrific catastrophe, and she tells the story through the lives of the women who it impacted. And just to clarify, Dalal, unfortunately, we don't actually know what happened, correct? I mean, we don't know why this explosion happened. Um, four years on, there's no official narrative. Uh, and the reason is the investigation, the national investigation has been in- obstructed and stalled by the political establishment in, in Lebanon and by the officials and MPs that have been uh, accused of being responsible um, of, of the, the explosion. What we know, and I talk about this in the book, is all based on the investigative uh, work of local journalists, a very thorough and comprehensive Human Rights Watch uh, report. We know that it was... Um, caused by, uh, you know, the ammonium nitrate. As you mentioned, there was, according to official documents, 2,750 tons, but we don't know how much of that blew up on that day. There was a fire that preceded the explosion, but we don't know what caused the fire. Uh, We know that this ammonium nitrate came on board of a, a, a ship, uh, to this day, there's um, no answer really as to who owned the ship. There were uh, links made by, again, local investigative journalists with Russian, Syrian businessmen, with links to the Assad uh, regime. Um, we uh, There are so many questions, Leslie, to, to, to be honest. Uh, why was the ammonium nitrate kept in the functioning port of the capital for so long, for more than six years? So it arrived in 2013, late 2013, and offloaded in 2014. And here we see that there was a lot of communication between uh, Lebanese officials, including some ministries and the judiciary, and the ministries lied to the judiciary to be able to offload that cargo. Uh, where What was you know the, the cargo for? Was it really meant for um, a weapons factory in Mozambique, as the official um, narrative says, or the intended destination was indeed uh, Beirut. And what was it being used for? There was an FBI report uh, leaked to the media that says that about only 500 tons blew up. So we wonder where did the rest go? It just didn't blow up or it was being sent somewhere. Again, so many questions that remain unanswered. And as long as the investigation is obstructed and there's no international investigation, this is what the victims' families are asking for, we will not have any answers anytime soon. And, you know, truth is the right of the victims and the the, the survivors um, and the families of of those uh, victims. And they're nowhere near that truth, uh, unfortunately. Well, clearly these chemicals were not stored correctly, but do you also think there was foul play involved? I know it's not our job to speculate as journalists, but do you do you have any thoughts? So, you know, a, a lot of um, people have spoken of um, negligence and, and mismanagement. There are forensic experts who say that the ammonium nitrate was stored in that uh, warehouse with acid and fireworks and maybe other explosive uh, material. 
Um, but we don't know if there's foul play. We don't have a definite answer. What is certain is that there's this is a case of criminal negligence. As per Lebanese law, there's enough evidence out there uh, that shows you that many officials at the port and outside of the port, including the Lebanese army, ministries, um, the president, the prime minister, etc., knew about the dangers of this ammonium nitrate and took no appropriate action to safely store it or get rid of it. Uh, so really, it makes you uh, wonder, why was that um, happening? And why are they obstructing the investigation to, to, uh, to this day? Raises so many questions, which is another reason why I'd like to invite our listeners uh, to ask questions. Maybe folks have questions for you, Dalal. Maybe folks remember the port explosion. Maybe they were following the story. Tell us, tell us your experience. Maybe you have a connection to Lebanon that you'd like to share. Email your comments and questions to forum at kqed.org, or you can find us on numerous social channels at KQED Forum. You can also give us a call right now at 866-733-6786. Again, that's 866-733-6786. You hinted at it earlier, Dalal. You said this was a distinct turning point in your own life. You, after this happened, decided to leave Lebanon and move to Paris. What drove you to make such a abrupt decision? Yeah, as I said, um, I think every one of us lost something on that day. And I think I really lost uh, my sense of safety. In, in Lebanon. But it was not just that, because I've survived other bouts of violence and, 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 and war. I think when I saw the trauma in the eyes of my own daughter, who was four back then, I realized that the only way to break these endless cycles of violence was to get out of the country. Um, I mentioned my grandmother in, in my book, and she lost her husband in 1958. He was killed it was a politically driven uh, murder uh, following a massacre in my hometown in the north of Lebanon. My grandpa had nothing to do with the massacre. It was just a revenge killing and he was a victim. And I saw my grandmother uh, living her life and not seeing any sense of justice because the man who killed him never served prison. He was protected by a politician. And fast forward more than 50 years on, you know, uh, my daughter and I and so many people of my generation and her generation survived the Beirut explosion. And look at us. To this day also, impunity is is, um, is prevalent. And um, I was like, there is no way I can protect her from all of this if I did not leave. And, you know, because also there was an economic crisis and there still is one, um, life in Lebanon was becoming harder and harder. But it's really the Beirut explosion that was a turning point, as as you said, and that pushed me to really uh, get out of, of this this violence so I can protect um, my daughter and, you know, find a place for her uh, and for my family that was more stable uh, and, and more safer and where we can really have, have a future. And yet, I mean, safer for your family, but I think you left most of your family behind, including your husband. Yeah, this is very ironic. My husband did stay behind because of uh, his business. Uh, he goes back and forth now to Paris. So we've been uh, forcefully kind of separated. Um, and it's it's been hard for us as, as, as a family. It's hard for me. It's hard for my uh, daughter and trying to to find um, a solution on, on the long run. I also have my parents, my siblings, my extended family, all of them uh, stayed behind. And this was not easy. But I did this for my own daughter. Um, I, I just felt like I had no choice. Uh, this was not a country where I could raise her. 
You hinted at the economic crisis there. What was happening in Lebanon a few years prior, basically starting in 2019? What happened with the economic crisis and what were the conditions on the ground in Lebanon when the blast happened? Yeah, Lebanon was reeling under the burden of uh, an economic and financial crisis, which has been labeled by the World Bank as one of the top three crises since the 19th century. When the uh, blast happened, 80% of the Lebanese were already uh, under the poverty line. Uh, The Lebanese pound had uh, lost more than 80% of its value, so it it was devaluating at at very high speed. People were suffering from hyperinflation. Um, They had no access to basic goods such as medicine because of the currency devaluation. Imports were affected. Lebanon is a country that relies heavily on on imports. Um, The crisis was uh, was triggered in 2019, so a year before. uh, Things were already worsening and people took to the streets to protest the worsening economic conditions. Uh, The banks shut down for uh, more than two weeks using the protests as as a... as a pretext, saying for security reasons we're shutting down, but in fact they were just buying time. And when they reopened, uh, there was a bank run and people realized that they uh, had nothing left in in their uh, bank accounts. All of their deposits and savings were mere ink on paper, to be honest. The Lebanese were victims of what we call a Ponzi scheme. So the central bank was taking, uh, you know, their money from the commercial banks, giving it to the government, just to put it very simply. It's more complicated than that. They were lured by very high interest rates and all of that money was gone simply because Lebanon had a very successive corrupt governments that had spent all of that money. And, you know, Lebanon had a twin a deficit, a trade and a budget deficit, etc. Um, and so with this financial crisis, just everything uh, blew up and people were locked out of their savings. That includes me, my husband, we lost everything. And every single Lebanese, even those living abroad, had money uh, in, in Lebanon because of these high interest rates. They were attracted uh, by, by these interest rates. And so you can only imagine when people have nothing, their lifetime savings are, are gone, the currency is uh, devaluating, there's no access to uh, medicine, um, things were really, really bad. And we thought we had hit rock bottom in August 2020, and then the explosion happened, and you feel like, really, this is a bottomless abyss, you don't know how deeper uh, you can uh, you can dive, and and to this day, um, the Lebanese are suffering because the political establishment did nothing to, um, you know, enact any reforms or do something about the economic uh, crisis. Uh, they're just normalizing the crisis, impunity. Um, there are two crimes that were committed. This crisis, this economic crisis is one, and then the Beirut explosion is another. And again, no one has been held accountable for um, either or. And the Ponzi scheme was orchestrated by the central bank governor, who today is wanted by many European countries for money laundering and embezzlement. Um, that's another offense other than the Ponzi scheme. Uh, and uh, he was, you know, in partnership with the political establishment and the commercial banks who have on their boards a lot of the Lebanese politicians, unfortunately. It's obvious in your voice, but you, but you write it in, in the book. You say you haven't made peace with August 4th. 
you say you failed, you feel like you failed as a journalist, as a Lebanese, and as a human, you feel guilty for being one of the survivors. Is this book, uh, this memoir that's narrated by women, kind of your offering for, for all of those feelings, reconciling those feelings? Um, I, I think it helped uh, a lot to process what happened on that day, to process my own personal experience, but also my experience as a journalist, because this was the hardest assignment I had ever covered um, in, in my career, because it felt so personal. And I couldn't keep that distance that we're told to keep with a story. You feel like you're part of the story, unfortunately, because it hits you, it impacts the people you, you love, the city where, where you grew up. And so I think the process of interviewing these women and, you know, having access to their stories and sharing their pain and writing uh, about it helped me process my own feelings. And um, I, I wouldn't say I found peace because there's no justice. And if there's no justice, no one will find that peace. But but I think it, it partly helped me definitely process my own uh, trauma and, uh, you know, just um, take some distance and reconsider whatever happened uh, that, that year and what came after uh, because we we went through hell really for for three or four years until I got out and maybe other people who are still there people that I know are still suffering uh, every day including some of the women in the book who are still surviving uh, these myriad of, of crises. I imagine as you were doing your reporting in the days after the explosion, you came across a story, a woman, where you thought. Maybe it wasn't in the days after, but in the months after, whenever. Was there a particular woman's story that you'd like to share that you knew you had to tell a book, knowing what had happened to her? Um, I mean, so many of these women have really powerful stories, but there's the story of Suha at the beginning. Uh, she... When you read her story, you just realize hers and so many women in this book, the levels of trauma that these women have to, to, to survive. She was at the hospital treating her six-year-old daughter uh, from cancer. Uh, she had a, a, a blood cancer, and her husband was was visiting. Uh, he lived abroad in, in Nigeria, like so many Lebanese who have to go abroad to make a living because of the instability back home. Um, and it was his first time visiting since the pandemic had started, and he was by the bed of, of her daughter when the explosion happened. And the kid who survived had to see her father get killed. Uh, and he was killed in a hospital room. You go to his hospital to survive. And basically, Soha describes so vividly in, in the book, and it's a very painful uh, part of the book, how she had to go up and down barefoot, nine floors, trying to find someone to carry the body of her husband, trying to save him. Uh, he was already dead, but she she couldn't admit that. Um, and... Um, it's it's just so hard. It's it's hard when when you see that someone was was already suffering from something. You know, her her kid was 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 dying, was diagnosed with cancer, and then her husband was away, and she was living like a single mom. And then her husband gets killed in front of her and 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 her daughter. 
And then after he dies, she suffers from discriminatory laws in Lebanon. This is the other thing that comes up in the book, is that women in Lebanon suffer from patriarchal laws to this day, because anything related to inheritance, custody, divorce, is managed by religious courts. We have 15 religious courts, believe it or not, depending on your sect um, and, and your religion. And she was telling me how after he was killed, uh, she was struggling because she had to have a male representative, a male custodian on behalf of her uh, deceased husband to be able to take care of her children. Yeah. Whereas, if he, whereas if she was killed, uh, basically, he, the husband can do anything he wants with the children. He doesn't need a representative on her behalf. So here you see how unfair it is. Um, and then there was another similar story where women after the explosion, after going through the trauma of the explosion, have to you know, navigate these unfair laws. Uh, her name was Lidian. She suffered from uh, a trauma in her head and she was in a coma. And when she woke up, her husband kidnapped her newborn son. And to this day, she has not been re reunited with him. She's now in Turkey getting rehab, speech uh, therapy, because she lost her ability to speak after the, uh, the explosion. And to see her having to fight for that, for the custody and to, to be reunited with her, with her young child after having survived this, is just so unfair. And again, she also, it's because of, uh, you know, religious laws and very discriminatory laws against women in, in Lebanon. And a bit ironic, right? Because Lebanon is sort of billed as one of the first and most pro-feminine countries in the Middle East. Yes, and there are very vibrant feminist movements today in Lebanon, but unfortunately, it's an institutional and structural problem. The laws are very patriarchal. Those in power are mostly men. Uh, it's a confessional system where religion is um, really interferes in people's daily lives because, as I said, all these personal status issues are managed by religious courts. Um, so in, in reality, women do suffer in, in, in Lebanon. This is what I highlight a lot in in, in my book, because as you said, people would think that this is one of the most liberal countries in, in, in the Arab world and in the Middle East when it comes to women, but it's, it, it's not. Believe it or not, women cannot give nationality to their children. This is uh, one thing that a lot of people don't know. So if you are Lebanese and you marry a foreigner, your kids are not going to uh, get a Lebanese passport. They will have to have a residency living in, in Lebanon. So... It's, there are a lot of unfair um, uh, laws. It's, it's societal, but it's also very much institutional and structural. We're talking about Lebanon and specifically kind of inspired by the Beirut explosion that happened in August of 2020, excuse me, August of 2020. And we're joined by journalist Dalal Mawad. Her new book is All She Lost, and it details the aftermath of the catastrophe through the really profound stories of the women who it impacted and who survived. We would love to hear from you. What questions do you have for Dalal? Do you have a connection to Lebanon? Tell us about it. What do you think of the current situation in the country? Or were you around for the port explosion? Uh, or did you learn about it? Did you follow that story? We would love to hear from you. You can email your comments or your questions to forum at kqed.org. You can find us on numerous social channels at KQED Forum, Twitter, X, Instagram, digital. Our digital community is Discord. Or you can just jump on the phone, 866-733-6786. Again, that's 866-733-6786. Stay with us. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. 
Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. This is Forum. I'm Leslie McClurg. I'm in today for Mina Kim, and we are talking about the Beirut explosion that happened in August of 2020 and the history of Lebanon in general. And we're talking with journalist Dalal Mawad. Her new book is All She Lost, and it details exquisitely the aftermath of the catastrophe through the lives of the women who were impacted. And we'd love to hear from you. Do you have a connection to Lebanon? Do you remember the port explosion? Maybe what do you hope for Lebanon going forward? Email your comments and your questions to forum at kqed.org or give us a call now at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. Uh, Dalal, how would you position Lebanon or, or what do you think the role of the country has been in the Middle East historically? You know, because of Lebanon's diversity, internal uh, diversity, um, the religious diversity, but also, you know, um, how the Lebanese have spread their wings abroad. There's more Lebanese abroad uh, than there are um, in uh, Lebanon. Lebanon was uh, seen as... Um, you know, a, a country that could potentially uh, play um, uh, an important role in, in, in the region. Um, and, you know, building bridges, uh, being a messenger, as once, uh, you know, the Pope Jampol II said. But unfortunately, it's been mirrored by conflict and a lot of divisions. This diversity that I'm talking about uh, turned into uh, conflict. And that's because the Lebanese divided on the inside always called for external help and uh, interference. And so Lebanon turned into a proxy in regional and international wars throughout history. The civil war was, was one of them. It was not just a war of the others, because the Lebanese also fought each other after the foreign powers left or, you know, that part of the conflict ended. But unfortunately, I think to this day, uh, Lebanon throughout history um, has not been able to build on that uh, diversity and to build on, you know, the um, the experience and uh, the success of, of the Lebanese uh, abroad, because uh, there are so many Lebanese who've done amazing things um, outside of Lebanon as well. And I call it in my book, uh, a dysfunctional compromise. It's always been a kind of a internal and external compromise where these internal and external forces have to reach compromises that unfortunately were not uh, for the best of, of, of Lebanon as, as a nation. And um, these um, divisions um, obstructed progress, uh, and they still do to, to this day. Uh, I'll just give you an example. Today, we have 
no president. It's been more than two years. The Lebanese can't come together and, and elect a president of, of the republic. And this is because of their internal divisions, but also because of all the regional and international interferences in Lebanese affairs. So we were never really sovereign. Uh, even after the French, who uh, had you know a, a mandate and colonized Lebanon, uh, left, um, we still had interferences from many uh, countries. And so, uh, really, the Lebanese uh, throughout history and throughout time, you feel, are looking for a nationhood that never really came uh, together. We never found that uh, nationhood, and we're still uh, looking uh, for it. Um, and it's unfortunate because, again, as I said, because of our diversity, you know, the different communities, the religious and, and, and other um we we could play a very positive role in, in the region. And the Lebanese are very smart, and we've seen that, uh, especially when they go to enabling environments outside of, of Lebanon and are not uh, you know, struggling with, with the instability and the dysfunction inside of, of Lebanon, what, what they can do. Um, so, yeah, uh, I, I, I think... Lebanon cannot complete and fulfill its its potential if it stays like this, if it's not independent, if it's not uh, neutral also in, in so many uh, cases and, and shielded from the conflicts around it, if uh, it has no stability, if it has no functioning state. Today, Lebanon, Lebanon is a complete failed state. And it's it, our problem is one of governance. Yes, we have an economic crisis, but our problem has always been one of uh, governance uh, throughout time. Let's bring in Eid to the conversation. Uh, Eid, in, you're in Berkeley? You're on the air. Hi, good morning. Yes, while I was born in Egypt, a big part of my family come from Lebanon. Beautiful country. Beautiful country it was. It was called the Jewel of the Middle East. It had the most beautiful misword ever selected beside Egypt. I'm really sad. I'm really sad and heartbroken because that was a great country. The political strife there was bad, always. And the whole religion issue, division, was awful. was awful. Uh, my question to your guest, I personally suspect that was not an accident. I think that was planned because nobody, everybody knows, uh, little chemistry student knows that, uh, you know, that chemical is very explosive, very, not only exploded by heat, explosive by, by uh, shocks. If you, if you shock it a bit, it explodes. And it is the most explosive uh, chemical that uh, you can buy. Basically, it's fertilizer. This is how McVeigh destroyed the Oklahoma State Building. It is very explosive, but I'm very suspicious. And God help us all. We have to stop all of this nonsense that's happening in Lebanon, in Gaza, in Syria, everywhere else, we need to get a, have good people run the world instead of awful people, including President Biden, who is killing hundreds of poor, innocent children thank, every day. Thank, thank you, Eid, for your, your thoughts. Thank you. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. Uh, let's go to Sasha in San Leandro. You're on the air. Uh, hi, I'm curious about the connection of the women's rights in Lebanon and in um, under Hamas power in Palestine, if it is connected in any way, and if the author thinks that Hamas coming to power in Palestine will help women in Lebanon have better lives and more rights. Thoughts there, Dalal? 
yeah, I I don't see the the connection to be honest between uh, women in in Lebanon and uh, you know Hamas being in in power. It's uh, Hamas rules over uh, Gaza and Lebanon. Women's rights are managed by the political um, establishment. I mean, part of the political establishment uh, is allied to uh, to Hamas, for example, Hezbollah. Uh, but I don't think Hezbollah is the only culprit when it comes to women's rights in in, in Lebanon. It's uh, I, w- I would blame the whole political establishment. Although definitely, uh, they they are not uh, the the biggest advocates on you know women uh, women's rights uh, I, I don't know if i'm answering her question this is uh, uh, this is what i uh, what i heard but i'll tell you this what brings together lebanese women uh, and palestinian women is the their lingering trauma uh, palestinian women have survived endless cycles of violence because of uh, you know um, Israel and occupation and uh, the injustice they had to, uh, to 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 survive and because of all the conflict and and the wars and the endless wars in in, in Gaza, uh, so this we have we have in common having to to survive this again and again and living with impunity and and injustice and not seeing anyone held accountable for the injustice and uh, the, the the violence that we have to uh, to endure and this is what's happening today in Gaza of course. Um, those responsible of, of the conflict, uh, including Israel, you know, need to be held accountable for uh, war crimes and uh, for what what is happening. And uh, the Palestinian women, just like the Lebanese women, are seeking a sense of justice. And this is what I always say: is that our people in the region will never find peace if there's no justice. Justice is a precondition for peace in, in, in Lebanon and, and, and elsewhere in the region. And impunity is a problem everywhere in, in the Middle East. What do you foresee going forward in the, in the Middle East in terms of Lebanon's role in the conflict in Gaza or the war in Gaza? Uh, unfortunately, um, you know, Lebanon's decision to, to go to war um, is... It, not uh, in the hands of, of the Lebanese or the Lebanese government. We're taken hostage by what Hezbollah wants and, and, and doesn't want. Um, there, I, I am not familiar with recent polls, but in back in November, there were polls that showed that the Lebanese, although they're in solidarity with the Palestinians and with, with Gaza, they do not want to uh, uh, go to war because it's bas- basically suicidal for Lebanon to engage in a full-fledged war. We're a completely collapsed uh, country, and uh, this is going to bring uh, no good. The Lebanese today you know, are, are standing in, in solidarity with, with the Palestinians, but there are real fears and Lebanon is already paying the price of what is going on in in the south. Uh, You know, the southern part of Lebanon is affected uh, by the ongoing cross-border shelling. Tens of of thousands of people have been displaced as a result uh, since um, October and, uh, you know, had to leave uh, their homes. We have agricultural sector completely impacted in in the south. Uh, Again, there's an economic crisis and the businesses were already suffering so um, this is definitely uh, no good, but there are real fears today that this is going to escalate uh, further. And I was, uh, you know, I, I don't like to speculate and we don't know the intentions of both sides are, are not clear. I mean, in, in the case of Lebanon, I'm talking about Hezbollah, um, but um, we we don't know. I mean, a lot of... Uh, 
there's a lot of speculation today, and I was just reading an article this morning uh, about a possible ground invasion in, in the south to to be able to clear the north of Israel and have you know the uh, the people return there, and that would be uh, terrible. Terrible, and and we have heard Israeli officials warn Lebanon that you know if this turns into full-scale war, they're gonna destroy everything, and this they're not just holding Hezbollah responsible, but the whole uh, government. Um, so, uh, personally, I would like to see Lebanon not dragged into a full-scale war because I know my country can't afford that. But I would also like to see some uh, sense of justice for, for Palestinians. And our stability is much very much dependent on uh, Palestinian statehood, a rightful and just Palestinian state. We want this conflict to be resolved so that we can also see stability. A lot of the women in the book mention Israel's wars on Lebanon. Lebanon was occupied until uh, 2000 by uh, by Israel. There was a, an invasion in 82 during the civil war that many people will not forget because that was very gory and, and, and bloody. And yeah, we would like a just solution to the Palestinian um, uh, issue for us to find uh, stability, of course. And as long as there's no solution for the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, Lebanon is going to get dragged in this and we're going to keep paying a hefty price. And unfortunately, as I said, um, our decision to go to war and peace today is not ours, really. Uh, it's, it's one group that decides if we go to war or not, and that's Hezbollah. You're listening to Forum. I'm Leslie McClurgaman today for Mina Kim, and you're listening to journalist Dalal Mawad uh, speak about her new book, All She Lost, and it details the aftermath of the horrific catastrophe uh, in 2020, this giant explosion, and she tells the story through the lives of the women who were impacted. Uh, Dalal, we have a comment, or excuse me, a question from a listener on Discord. They ask, why can't they just end the sectarian division of power? Does the political class want to keep this in place? And how do they benefit from the status quo? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, the you would hear a lot of uh, politicians saying, oh, we want to end confessionalism. Yeah, sectarianism is a problem. But in reality, they don't. Uh, they're very happy with the status quo. It makes them very resilient. I always say the Lebanese are not the ones who are resilient. It's the political establishment. It allows them to, to thrive. So they've built this... Uh, patronage network, clientelism around this sectarian um, network. And the port of Beirut, where the explosion happened, is, is the perfect example, where they divide the spoils of the state institutions among uh, themselves. And they, um, you know, they appoint representatives, civil servants that uh, are loyal to them so that they can manipulate and use state institutions um, you know, for their own benefit and for their own uh, communities. Um, and they use sectarian representation to stay in power and to put those they want in in in, in power. Um, and sectarianism is is basically making the Lebanese system uh, dysfunctional. They didn't even implement uh, you know that agreement uh, they reached at the end of the civil war, which is known as the Taif Agreement, which actually. Um, uh, if implemented, might have uh, resolved many of the problems because one example is that the parliament is no longer divided among sectarian lines, but there's a senate for the various confessions and the parliament is secular. Today, we we still have a, a sectarian representation in, in, in parliament. And um, yeah, uh, I mean, uh, briefly, they don't want to get rid of the sectarian system because it helps them stay in, in power. 
Well, you talk about a bit, a bit, and I would say a bit of cautious optimism in the new members of par- Parliament who were elected in 2022. What are your current feelings about the leadership? And, and are you still cautiously optimistic that things might turn in a positive direction? I think I've become more pessimistic, to be honest. I know, uh, I hear it's no that. Longer, <laughs> it's no longer cautious optimism. Um, it's It's been two years now, we're nearing the next elections, and I hear from a lot of people who voted for these new MPs, you know, that they won't vote for them again. And that worries me because, uh, you know, Lebanese have voted for the same politicians who were warlords turned politician for decades and they are not willing to be patient and give these new MPs some time. But I don't just blame the Lebanese and the voters. I mean, also these new MPs have been divided. They continue to be divided. They have not been able to uh, do much. Yes, they are facing a mafia. I mean, the political establishment in Lebanon is a mafia, uh, but uh, they are not united. There are so many things um, where they so many instances where they could have shown more political maturity again in my humble uh, personal opinion and they uh, they did not so i'm more and more pessimistic uh, although i do believe we need to give them more time including with the next elections um the political establishment needs to to go away i'm talking about these warlords who've been there for for decades and the answer to that is not on the streets we tried in 2019 um, the ballot box is one, uh, amending the electoral law is, is, is one way to see more change in the ballot box. Um, yeah. Well, you ended your book on the story of Coco in the final minutes of the, of the show here. Who is Coco? Uh, why her? You know, my editor asked me to end on a hopeful note. And I'm like, what? I'm a journalist. I can't lie. There's no hope. And he's like, come on, you can't. It's so depressing. And I'm like, the situation is depressing. And I don't see the light at the end of the tunnel. But then I thought, you know, among these women that I met and I interviewed, Coco, who is 86, um, uh, 86 year old, and is a survivor of the Beirut explosion. Throughout my time with her, she was my eyes into the 50s and the 60s, which is considered or labeled as the golden days of, of Lebanon. This is a period where, you know, the banking sector was thriving. There was a lot of money coming into Lebanon. It was the era of freedoms, complete freedoms, social, political, economic freedom. And a lot of people are nostalgic about this period. And I only know it through movies and books and then through the eyes of Coco. And so I end with that. Um, And I end with Coco, who was a pioneer at that time with her career and was really uh, quite a character, quite a happy character who uh, has touched me and has become a friend of mine. And she's she's one of the poster cards of of Lebanon. She's famous from an advertisement that I used to watch on TV. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, and so I decided to end with her Uh, again without romanticizing about that period because it had its own issues. But it was nice to go back to the 50s and the 60s and to take a sneak peek at what Lebanon looked like back then. Thank you so much, Dalal Mawad. Uh, Her new book is All She Lost. And thanks you so much to our listeners. You've been listening to Forum. Again, I'm Leslie McClurg in for Mina Kim, who's back tomorrow. Have a great day.
Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.